Let's go ahead and turn to Philippians 4, if you're not already there. I wanted to return this week and just look at verse 8. Last week we looked at uh, chapter 4, verses 2 through 9. And there's some really significant statements made in, uh, in Philippians 4, some very, very well-known verses. And verse 8 is certainly one of those, and I wanted to give some more time to it. Paul writes here, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Lord, we come to your word to be fed on it, to be transformed by it, to be nourished with it. We ask that you would open our eyes and open our hearts, set a watch over my mouth that I would speak what is true, and open up our ears that we may all hear and understand and grow today. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are said to be living in in the information age. In 2015, there were an estimated 2 million articles posted online every month at an average of 500 words each. That's 10 billion words a day that were published. That number's only increased in the past three years. And some might think that if the Lord delays and 5,000 years from now, archaeologists look back at our, at our society and at our culture that, that they would see this, this mass of information and describe this as a time when people gathered as much information and knowledge as they possibly could when we were focused on facts and learning and, and truth. But that's really not the case. They would be wrong. Because for all of the words and the articles published for all of the information available today at the drop of a hat. It's not truth, but emotion that rules the day. Our culture is, is fully dominated by emotional impact. I remember even when I was in seminary, and, and certainly since then, there is a constant encouragement in communication to not say, I think, but I feel and that's because when you say, well, I think, it's, it sounds judgmental. But when you say, I feel, it doesn't say judgmental. It doesn't sound judgmental. So facts have taken a second, plants, a second, pla- second place to fancy. Men and women in our culture and the news are not being judged by facts. They're being judged by how other people feel about them. And those feelings are uh, taken as proof. They're taken as evidence. And the reality is that in our time, most people would rather hear a lie than the truth if the lie makes them feel better, if the lie makes them happier. The church has not been immune from this type of thinking. For the most part, the charismatic movement urges people to not think and just listen to the Lord. There are books written from that perspective that say the mind is really the root of the trouble. The problem is we're thinking too much and we're not just listening to the Lord, which really ultimately comes down to setting aside thought and yielding to emotion. And then, of course, the liberal church makes a 
a huge pretense of thinking. I know Justin's got a, a theological library. I've got a huge theological library. The vast majority of religious scholarship that takes place is liberal scholarship. When I look at new commentaries, I'm getting ready to start in Hebrews, and so I've got my eye out for commentaries. I have to be, be very careful about the, the books that I purchase because the majority of, of thinking within the church is liberal. It's based on what's emotional. It's not based on what is true. That's why there's been such a quick acceptance of homosexuality and, and gender confusion amongst liberal denominations and churches. After the Obergefell decision, which I think was two years ago now, two summers ago, and the Supreme Court of the United States said homosexual marriage is fine, churches fell rapidly because they had always wanted a reason to give way to their emotional fluidity. And once the law got out of the way, they no longer found any other reason to oppose homosexuality as a valid lifestyle. And so I want to look this morning at Philippians 4.8. I want to think about what it has to say and, and think about the, the importance of the mind from a biblical point of view. From the moment of creation, God has called us to use our minds. I want you to think about the very first command given to Adam. The Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. Now, what, what we don't see here is God taking Adam through the garden and simply pointing and saying, bad, good, good, bad, bad, good. We see God speaking to Adam using words, Words that Adam is expected to remember and to obey and to accurately pass on. Mind is so important that an entire book of the Bible is devoted to it. The book of Proverbs. One of the most basic statements found in Proverbs is Proverbs 4.7. And I love this verse. The beginning of wisdom is get wisdom. I mean, that's like entry level. This is preschool Bible here. The beginning of wisdom is wise up. The beginning of wisdom is get wisdom. And with wisdom, acquire understanding. With all you're acquiring, get understanding. As we move into the, the Gospels, we see Jesus answering the question, what's the greatest commandment? What does he say? He says, it's this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. He's quoting from the law, by the way, that we aren't loving God if we're not loving him with our mind. There are people today who would say very quickly, the greatest commandment is to love God. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says that love has to have a specific form. It has to involve our heart, that is our will and our person. It has to involve our soul, that immaterial part of us. And it has to involve our mind. In Matthew 16, when Jesus told his disciples that he was going to Jerusalem and he would be arrested and tortured and die and rise again, Peter took him aside and rebuked him. Jesus rebukes Peter in turn and calls him Satan. And he calls him Satan, he says, because he had set his mind on the things of man, not on the things of God. 
In Mark 15, Jesus cast demons out of a man. And when people found that man, he was sitting there, the text says, in his right mind. In the night of his resurrection, this might be one of the most important things we can understand. The night of his resurrection, when Jesus appeared in that, in that room and showed himself to his disciples. Luke 24, 45 says, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. The same emphasis continues on in the epistles. Romans 8, 5 says, for those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the spirit, and we can supply the phrase, set their minds on the things of the spirit. So the mind is a, is a battleground. The mind is also the recipient of the judgment of God. Romans one twenty eight. God gave them over to a depraved mind. Depraved actions come from depraved minds. And to the contrary, Paul says, and Peter says, then Christians are to set their mind on the things above, not the things that are on earth. We are supposed to think. We are supposed to put our minds and our reasoning to use, not in an earthly way, but in a biblical way, in a spiritual way. Peter writes to Christians who are facing suffering, therefore prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in the spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Hope is an awesome thing. As Christians, we have hope that can't be comprehended by the world, but we can't separate that hope from a prepared mind, from a mind that has been streamlined and is focused on the things of God. Ultimately, transformation itself happens because of the renewing of our mind. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And so we must think. We must think. We must not simply react or respond. We must think. And that's why Paul writes in Philippians 4.8, Finally, brethren, Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, whatever, or if there is any excellence, if anything worthy of praise, think on these things, dwell on these things, be pondering these things. It's a command, dwell on or think on is a command, and it's in the, uh, it's in the indicative sense, which means it's an ongoing, or the present tense, which means it's an ongoing thing. Think on these things and keep thinking on these things. So the New American Standard here says dwell on, which carries that sense. Paul is not telling us what to think, but he's telling us how to think. He doesn't say, think about evangelism, think about sharing the gospel, think about prayer, think about studying the Bible, think about fellowship. He says, here's the categories of things that I want you to think about. Now, earlier in the week... I had several pages prepared on these words. And then I threw it all away. Because you don't need to know details about what the word true means. You know what true means. True means in accordance with what is real. You know what honorable means, worthy of respect. You know what's right because God is right and just and justice. 
and righteous. You know what pure means. It's not impure. It represents the holiness of God. You know what's lovely. You know what's of good reputation and well thought of. You know what excellent means. You know what praiseworthy means. I don't need to tell you what these words mean. The command is to think about these things. What we do need to remember, and I pointed this out last week, as Philippians 4 opens up, Paul says in verse 2 that he wanted Yodi and Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord, to agree in the Lord. In verse 4, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. In verse 5, he says, the Lord is near. In verse 6, he says, in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. The location, the, the, the source of all these things is God. It's the person of God each and every step of the way. And that remains true in verse 8. So what is true is true because God says it's true. What is honorable is what God finds honorable or worthy of respect. What is right, what is pure, what is lovely, of good reputation, what is excellent and praiseworthy are those things from God's perspective. And we know what he thinks about those things because he's told us in his word. He's given us the scriptures to guide our thinking. Now we face a challenge. We face a challenge. In the first century, there were, there were relatively few distractions for people. There's no TV, there's no radio, there's no printed books, there's no cell phones or tablets, there's no internet, there's no Facebook, there's no Twitter, there, there's no electricity, and so the ability to extend daylight doesn't really exist. For the most part, people went to bed when it got dark. They got up when it, when it became light. And there wasn't a whole lot to do. And yet, there were distractions that impacted the way that people thought. So in the, in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 5, the writer says, It is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. And what, specifically what he wants to do is explain about Melchizedek. And he says, it's, it's hard for me to do that because you're dull of hearing. Your, your ears have become numb. He says a few verses later in chapter 6, verse 1, Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if, in God, if God permits. And he says it's difficult to do that with you because your hearing has become dull. All the distractions around you of life have, have numbed you to what's true. Well, if that was true of them in their time, how much more is it true of us today? Now, I've, now I'm reading that uh, people are so addicted to, to their devices that if their devices are taken away, they go into a depression. They, they behave like those with a physical addiction who are denied the source of that addiction. We are a mentally lazy 
people. Linda would bear this out if she was in here right now. As, as I study and, and I read and I contemplate, Thursday or Friday usually I, I really dive in for, for a number of hours into the text. I translate, I read commentaries and, and various books. And I can do about two hours or three hours. And, and that's often with headphones on that, that drown out other sound. I can't listen to music. I'm so musically oriented that if I'm listening to music, it distracts me. And so I have basically white noise. I have the sounds of, of waterfalls or rain, and I get that going so I'm completely focused. And after about two or three hours, my, I tell her my brain is full. That's about the, the amount of time that I can devote without taking a significant break. I don't know if people have always been that way, but I feel that I've got a lazy mind. My ability to, to, to focus for hours at a time is limited. So let's, let's understand some things. Let's understand what it means to have a sinner's mind and what we have when we're born. Romans 1.28 says that the sinner's mind is depraved by the judgment of God. 2 Corinthians 4 says the sinner's mind is blinded by Satan. Ephesians 4 says the sinner's thinking is futile. That is, it can't produce any good result. It, it, it works at everything, and at the end, there's nothing to, to really have. And the sinner's mind is ignorant because it's void of divine truth. 1 Corinthians 2 says the sinner's mind is powerless to understand divine truth. Divine things, spiritual things, are spiritually understood. And so when we first come to Christ, we come to Christ with a severe mental handicap. And we have to be taught how to think. Well, the good news is God wants to teach us how to think. He says to his people Israel in Isaiah chapter 1, Come now, let us reason together. And he goes on to say, Let's reason together about your need for forgiveness and atonement. Your, skin, your sins are as, are as scarlet, but I will make them as white as snow. You need to come and talk. You need to come and reason and listen and think. There's no better instructor on how to think than the God who made the mind. That God says in Psalm 32, 8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. I love this phrase. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Um, some of you are, are auditory learners. You, you can learn when people say things to you. Others of you might be visual learners. You can learn when, when you see something done. I, I kind of need to have everything done. But what's best is when somebody is teaching and instructing and counseling me with their eye on me. I'm taking a, an online photography class. And the lessons are, are presented in, in written form on the internet. I go to the web page and I, I read the lesson. They're sample pictures. That's the visual part. They usually have two or three brief YouTube videos kind of showing the concepts. And, and that gets me about 30% into what's happening in the lesson. During the course of this week, this is the, the first week and and, and so I have an assignment, and I'm to take 
eventually three pictures and then upload those pictures. And when I upload those pictures, then one of the instructors will record a video of him commenting on my picture. And that gets me about 60 or 70% because I'm getting feedback on what I've done. But the best instruction I could have would be to have that instructor with me as I was taking the picture, to have his eye on me as I'm actually doing it. And to have him say, no, 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 not that way. Try it this way. Or come around to this side and look at it from that side. Or kneel down or step back or increase your depth of field or any one of those types of things. Well, God is the instructor who counsels us with his eye upon us. As we learn, we are not learning from a a dead book. We're learning from a living book, which is communicated to us by a living God who walks with us in the, the, the matters of life and teaches us as we go as one who is with us. The third thing that I want you to remember is that Jesus taught his own disciples to look. I actually want you to turn to, to Matthew 6. I don't want to show this to you. I want you to see it in your Bible. Matthew chapter 6. In verse 25, Jesus says to his disciples, For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns and yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you by being worried can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Now, in these, in these verses, we, we see two things that really stand out. At least I hope they stand out. In verse 25, Jesus says, look, observe, study, contemplate, ponder the birds of the air. And toward the middle of verse 28, he says, observe how the lilies of the field grow. Look at them, study them, think about them. The old King James said, consider. So what he wants us to do is look at the birds, look at at the, the, the flowers, think about them, contemplate them, and to think hard and well about them. And then he asks questions. In verse 25, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? And and we're not told that he did this, but Jesus could have said, I'll just let you ponder that for a moment. He wants them to think. In verse 26, are you not worth much more than birds? Verse 27, 
Who, by worrying, can add to the length of his life? Verse 29, or verse 30. If God clothes the grass of the field, will he not much more clothe you? See, what Jesus wants his disciples to do is to think. He says, I want you to look at this and think about what you're seeing. And then I want you to step back and, and contemplate what you've seen and what it means. How does the Lord teach us to think? He gives us a curriculum on truth. He gives us his word. He has sealed it in writing. It doesn't change. And so if Jesus wants us to look at the birds of of the air, shouldn't we be looking at the scripture? If he wants us to carefully observe the flowers, shouldn't we carefully observe the scripture? Now, what's the goal of all of this thinking that that we're doing? Well, the goal is transformation. Now I've got to get past this. The goal is transformation, going back to Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, the world is happy if you'll simply conform to the standard. It doesn't care if you change. It doesn't actually believe that you can change. In fact, California now has laws against uh, trying to cure someone so, so-called of homosexuality because they don't believe that anybody can change. They don't care if you change. The world just demands that you toe the line and be like everyone else, that you put on an, an outside image of, uh, of what they want you to be. Whatever you think on the inside, just be a certain way on the outside. Human religion, by the way, is exactly the same. It says, do this, do that, say these words, do these actions, stand here, sit there, kneel here, sit here, look the right way on the outside, and that's what being a Christian means. That's what being uh, in Christ means. But the goal is not simply outer confirmation. The, The goal is inner transformation. We are... Almost done with our kitchen, painting our kitchen, and, and uh, we're not remodeling. We're just cleaning up what's there, but it's taking longer than we thought. But we're about done. I know that I can, I, we've got paint in our house, and, and so I can, I can take a sponge and I can put it into a can of paint and squeeze it and get that paint saturated into the sponge and then set the sponge to dry, and that paint will never come out. That paint has become part of the sponge. It's now inseparable. But I also know that if I took a piece of of polished stainless steel and I poured some paint on that stainless steel and I gave it several days to dry, that it would be a, a relatively easy thing to get the paint off the stainless steel. It's not going to penetrate. Well, the point here is that the world says, we're not interested in penetrating your heart. We're not interested in penetrating your soul or your character. We just want to put the, the right covering over the outside. But the word of God and the purpose of God is to transform us from the inside out. So in Matthew 15, Jesus says we are not defiled by what we put into our bodies, but by what we say, because that comes out of our hearts. The new covenant then is the promise of a new heart and a new mind. 
In Philippians 1.6, God begins a good work in us and he is faithful and will bring it to completion. In Philippians 2.12, God is at work within us so that we want to be transformed and we are able to live transformed lives. And Romans 12.2, as I've already shown you a couple of times, says that transformation does not begin with character modification or behavioral modification, but with transformation of the mind and how we think. We are going to think. We are thinking creatures. We can't help but think. The question is, what will we think on? We have the exhortation of the Word of God to think about what's true, what is honorable, what is right, what is pure, what is lovely, whatever is of good repute, whatever is excellent, and whatever is worthy of praise. Father, we thank you for the love that you have for us and ask that you would cement these words into our hearts and minds. We ask that you would fulfill that promise of Psalm 32, that you would instruct us and teach us and counsel us with your eye upon us according to our own individual need for growth and knowledge. We thank you that you don't rubber stamp us out, but rather that you work with each of us who belong to you as individuals. Lord, as we come to the communion table then, we recognize that we may look fine on the outside, but on the inside we are still in the process of of transformation. Most of us would look at our insides and not be very happy with what we see. We thank you that when Jesus died on the cross, his sacrifice was complete. It not only covered our, our fallenness and our sin up to the point that we trusted you, it covers our fallenness and our sin all the way through the end of life. And by his resurrection, by the power that raised him from the dead, you are raising us from the dead. You are transforming us into his image. It's a long, painstaking process. But there is a reminder in the the bread of communion and the wine of communion that we're being transformed from the inside out. And we thank you for that and for your precious love to us.